Last summer, I met a youngish woman named, well, let's call her Naomi. Naomi arrived at the church office one afternoon and politely asked for help charging her cell phone. She had a long handwritten list of phone numbers that she was going down one by one looking for a place to live. It turned out that after years on the waiting list, Naomi had finally received a Section 8 housing voucher. Good news, or so it seemed. Because having a voucher can help you pay the rent, but only if you can find a vacancy with a landlord who's willing to rent to you in the first place. In California, unlike many other states, it's legal for landlords to simply refuse to rent to people who would be paying with Section 8 vouchers. But if you get a voucher and don't use it within a certain period of time, it expires. At the time I met her, Naomi had three weeks to find a place to live or else be sent back to square one to start all over again. Right now, there are about 26,000 people on Sonoma County's waiting list for Section 8 vouchers. There are 3,000 rental properties that are known to take those vouchers. And each year, only about 300 of those actually turn over. So the odds didn't look good. I don't know what happened for Naomi. I was able to help her with a couple of nights in a motel and to direct her to some phone numbers of agencies and resources that might help. But sometimes the system just isn't enough. Jesus came to the pool of Bethzatha. And on that day, he met a man who had been on the waiting list for 38 years. 38 years waiting, much like Naomi, for that one precious and maybe short-lived chance. Imagine waiting for these healing mineral waters to swirl and bubble, waiting day in and day out for that window to open. And then perhaps one day, suddenly there it is, but with so many others pushing and jostling to get in, you hardly stand a chance. And then the waters go still, and that golden window of opportunity closes, and you're back at square one once more. So often, the systems that we set up to try to help people in need are colossally overburdened. In some cases, they're woefully inadequate to begin with. In other cases, a system that used to function is overwhelmed by a spike in need. Beth Zatha seems to have been one of those attempts at a system. A mineral water pool said to have healing properties and some porticos had been built around it for people with disabilities to rest in and wait. But there are plenty of pools of Beth Zatha today. In addition to housing, we might think of our patchwork healthcare system, where all of us at some point at best find ourselves trying to navigate a complex and confusing bureaucracy. And where people without insurance, and even some people with insurance, often have to make choices like deciding between taking medication and paying utility bills.
Or think about our immigration system, where the wait list for people to immigrate legally can be decades long, and where people who come seeking asylum are routinely detained for two years or more before receiving a hearing because of the shortage of judges to hear their cases. In today's gospel, we hear of Jesus going to Jerusalem at the time of a great festival. And when he gets there, he goes not to the temple, at least not on this visit, and not to mingle with the celebrating crowds. But he goes to this pool. He goes to this little corner of Jerusalem where forgotten people are warehoused. This is where Jesus shows up. And whether it's an ER waiting room or an overcrowded shelter or an immigration detention center, these are the places where Jesus shows up today. So how do we show up with Jesus? What can we do as members of the body of Christ when people are suffering and the need seems overwhelming and beyond our control? It would, be able, it would be nice to be able to respond the way Jesus does in this story, by offering a miracle. Rise up, take your mat, and walk. And miracles happen on occasion. And they can be prayed for and hoped for. But most of us can't promise them with the kind of confidence that Jesus might offer. Nevertheless, there are times when we can offer tangible help to people who are in need. Every Sunday morning, this church feeds a hot breakfast to people who are hungry. We give away blankets and clothes. We give away groceries at our food pantry in Monterio. And we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that this kind of tangible direct assistance will solve the problem. It doesn't fix the systemic causes behind why people are hungry or poor or sick or out of housing. But that doesn't get us off the hook for doing it. Because direct, tangible kindness to others is a basic spiritual practice. Jesus himself says, whatever you do to the least of those who suffer, you are doing directly to me. So every tangible act of love we do to another human being, no matter how small, is a visible sign of God's love in the world. That makes it worth doing. But of course, direct assistance isn't enough. As Desmond Tutu is supposed to have said, there comes a point where we have to stop just pulling people out of the river, and we have to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. When the systems that our society has are not enough and are failing people, there are times when the church can actually work to help build better ones. And there's a long tradition of this. For centuries and centuries, the church has often been the first to step in and start things like hospitals, orphanages, schools, all kinds of institutions that eventually became an expected normal part of civil society, but had their origins among people of faith who saw a need and stepped in to meet it. And today, too, people of faith all over the country, all around the world are organizing to step up, to build housing, to start job training programs, to create rehab centers, 
to fill gaps and create institutions and systems that help others get up off their mats and walk. But then there are also times when the needs are too great even for our pooled resources as a church. There are times when only collective action at the level of society can really move the needle. No matter how much housing individual churches might build, we're not going to solve the housing crisis on our own. No matter how much we recycle and cut our carbon footprint, we can't fight climate change as a species without national governments and international cooperation. And so the church also has a role in advocacy. That's when we work together with friends and neighbors of every faith or no faith to use our voices and our votes and our dollars to call our society to care for all its members more justly. We have to do that with a certain degree of humility. A fierce passion for justice doesn't always equate into perfect expertise on exactly what policies will create that justice. But for Christians, the bottom line of what we seek is always God's fierce love for everyone, and especially God's particular care for those who are in need, for those who are sick, and for those who are suffering. And so as Christians, we seek always to move our society to do more of that. So we work at those three levels, direct, loving service to our neighbors in tangible ways, building systems in the church to do what we can do together to amplify our ability to provide care, and lifting up our voices as people of faith in the public square to press our governments and our other societal institutions in the direction of greater equity, greater peace. That's a big task, and it can feel tiring or exhausting. But in all of it, we need to remember that it's not up to us to make God's reign happen. In the reading we heard from Revelation, we hear about God's new city coming down from God out of heaven. And so bringing about the reign is God's initiative, not ours. It is God who is at work, always and everywhere. And it is our privilege to catch on and join in. God's love is on the move. It's our privilege to watch and see where Jesus is showing up and then to go show up with him.